Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. This last couple weeks, I've been reflecting on the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And um, I want to look at the question of just who killed Jesus. You know, there's a mistaken understanding that is at large that you often hear in Christian circles that God needed to punish someone for justice to be served. So he punished his son in our place. In reality, the religious leaders of God's people embodied the punishing God, punishing Jesus. And um, it was actually for their, for our own good. And um, Jesus, he went along with it because that was his will. It was his way, God's way of subverting the power of death. But this doesn't justify their behavior. So let's check out some well-known depictions of God from John's Gospel. For the law was given through Moses, writes John um, 1 verse 17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So Jesus reveals the Father, and we need to remember that over and over again when we think about you know, who the Father actually is in relationship to the Son. Um, the Father's not this um, distant, punishing, um, justice requiring other, okay, who is completely detached from the Son, but the Son actually reveals the Father in in the suffering love that he embodies on the cross. We see in John 1, again, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So there we go. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So uh, John the Baptist's understanding is that, um, is that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, not that Jesus is punished for the sins of the world. Um, and then we have um, something about God the Father, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So let's look at who is responsible for killing Jesus, according to Jesus himself. Um, you know, sadly, we, we often don't read the gospel accounts thinking about atonement or thinking about, um, you know, just the, the, the way that God um, undoes the power of evil. We sometimes read Paul's writings, but through a particular lens that I think is often uh, represents a misreading. But I just want to focus on the gospels today. So Jesus says in Matthew 20, 18 to 19, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Well, who does that? Well, Judas, right? And they, that is the chief priests and the scribes, will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So here, all the punishing is done by the religious leaders and 
um, and the Romans. And um, and God's role, uh, in, rather than being the punishing God, is to raise up Jesus. Now, according to the narrator of Matthew, it, it says in Matthew 26, 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. So there you go. The elders of the people, the chief priests, uh, plotting together with the high priest named Caiaphas um, and how they're going to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Well, why? Why are they wanting to kill Jesus? Um, well, we see in the gospel accounts that jealousy, rivalry, the fact that Jesus was gaining a following, um, I think though that's definitely in play. The, they're, they're described as saying, look, the world has gone after him. So they were threatened. They um, they were threatened because the masses were who were normally under their control, who were all about observing the law as they understood the law needed to be observed, um, which meant that they were under the power of these religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priests, the elders of the people. Um, Jesus came along and was subverting that law by you know, by breaking the law left and right regarding the Sabbath, regarding clean, unclean laws, you know, touching or re relating with sinners and unclean people, you know, touching dead bodies, um, engaging with women who were sinners, with tax collectors and sinners, eating with them. You know, Jesus was threatening the status quo. He was, he was messing with the whole social order by you know, by just breaking the, the religious rules and people were liking it, you know, especially the masses who benefited from his freely given healings and uh, casting out of evil spirits. And he exercised an authority that the religious leaders didn't have and that exposed them as not having authority, you know, um, and, and their statements all through the gospels like that. And so um, they were uneasy and you know, we see, um, we read many statements in the Gospels about how they're worried about even the Romans uh, taking away everything that they've gained if if the whole world does continue to go after Jesus. Well, um, who would be threatened by Jesus now? Say Jesus um, were was would, was truly believed in, and uh, for all of his claims, you know, uh, and we weren't anxious about about our lives about what we eat, what we drink, and about what we put on. And um, we didn't fear anyone who could kill us. Um, and we um, we were all about just uh, following Jesus and being about his mission. You know, who would be threatened if everyone just began to follow Jesus and saw him as the king, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who he is? Well, I think politicians would likely be threatened. Um, because they count on uh, faith leaders to endorse them. And so if all the faith leaders were saying, no, you know, we endorse Jesus, and they were not about um, letting themselves be co-opted and used, I think that would cause politicians to be threatened. Celebrities, they would be maybe losing a lot of, um, you know, notoriety. Um, I think the healthcare industry would probably suffer if, if Jesus was and his followers were actually healing people 
on a large scale um, or larger scale way if people were actually believing in the empowerment that comes through the Holy Spirit and we're, we were doing what Jesus calls us to do is heal the sick, um, you know, cast out demons. And, um, you know, if we were showing compassion, I think um, probably the rehab movement would also be affected. You know, there's a, there's a huge industry of um, recovery ministries and organizations and drugs of choice would be affected, right? Um, if nobody needed fentanyl anymore, no one, nobody needed and went after methamphetamines and, and just different kinds of drugs, alcohol, uh, weed, cigarettes, like the tobacco industry would be upset. The, you know, the cartels would be upset, you know, um, lower level and higher level drug dealers. Uh, the porn industry would definitely be affected if all the Christians, uh, you know, were turning away from that and getting freed from unclean spirits and, you know, just being about um, deep inner healing and healing from, you know, from sexual addictions, casinos, marketers, investment brokers, um, banks, you know, lots of uh, people could be affected if, if there was a mass movement of trust and faith where, you know, people were really following Jesus in a way that, that um, you know, that he, that he calls for, I think. And in contrast, though, um, we see that, you know, the, the religious leaders of Jesus's day were not endorsing him and were not, you know, about uh, calling people to full-on uh, faithfulness and, and obedience and following Jesus. Um, rather, we see, like in Acts chapter 3, when Peter and John, they come to the man who's lame from birth, who's at the beautiful gate, and they, you know, they tell him, look, silver and gold, we don't have. So, in other words, look, it's not about, um, you don't need, maybe you think you need money, but like we have something that is better than money and um, in the name of Jesus. And then they grab him by the right, with the right hand and lift him up and his ankles are strengthened and walking, leaping and praising God. He goes from being an excluded outsider to someone who is in, in the temple. And uh, there's a crowd that comes around him and Peter preaches to that crowd and uh, says, why do you look at us as if by some power or piety we have made this man well? And then um, he goes on to say, but you, um, you know, you all disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one who God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're witnesses. And it's on the basis of faith in his name, Jesus' name. It's in the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So really, look, Peter and John are attributing blame not to God in any way. Uh, there, this would, be, would have been their opportunity to talk about penal substitution, but they don't. Instead, they attribute all the blame to, um, you know, to the audience that are there, the insiders that would have been the excluders, the, the, clean, the, the clean enough ones who were able to be in the temple. And uh, Peter calls them to repentance and, um, and declares that, that they were ignorant and that God's forgiveness extended to them. But God also is the one who's described as raising up Jesus from the dead, which is the only thing he, that's attributed to God. 
And uh, we see this in Acts 10, 38 to 40, when Peter preaches again. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, how God anointed him with Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So there is a very positive, liberatory picture of God, isn't it? We are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. So once again, blame attributed to, um, you know, to the religious leaders and the, and the Romans, uh, but just they're all called they. Um, God, on the other hand, raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. So um, once again, another opportunity to talk about penal substitution and it's not even, there's no, no hint of it. Um, one of the things that we see um, that the religious leaders are doing everywhere in um, in the in the, the narrative about Jesus's around Jesus's arrest and his conviction and crucifixion is that they come with trumped up allegations and accusations against Jesus. Um, we see in Luke twenty two too that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death for they were afraid of the people. And uh, so they sought to destroy Jesus after he cleansed the temple um, and said, you guys have made it a den of thieves. Mark eleven eighteen and Luke nineteen forty seven. 47. Um, you know, we see in Matthew 26, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Um, this brings up another issue of just uh, other lower level collaborators. You know, here you have religious leaders that wholesale are described as kind of going along with those that are in power and um, and are against Jesus. And, and we see uh, a movement of conformism, you know, where religious leaders seem to all be uh, pressuring one another to to kind of follow the same narrative. And you know, where do we see that today? I mean, you know, um, we see it in our own society, this tendency of, of, of people to, you know, follow a particular narrative and, and embrace a particular interpretation. And, and we have camps that, you know, where dissenters are, are, are shunned or are just not given platforms or deplatformed, right? We see this on um, many sides of, of the spectrum. And, um, and so anyway, Jesus, um, Jesus um, is accused. Uh, a man comes and testifies that Jesus says, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Uh, Matthew 26, 61. And so there's people that are brought in, just described as a man or, you know, um, someone. And um, and who are these people? And who would be the equivalents of folks like that, like these these individuals, these lower, lower level collaborators today? Um we see that um, Jesus himself um, really stands up and even though often he's silent, he does say things like um, in Matthew 26, 64, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And wow, that really riles them up. They accuse him of blasphemy for calling himself the Christ and the King of the Jews. Um, and Jesus doesn't deny that he's the king of the Jews. You know, Pilate says, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, 
um, or that's actually the high priest. You are you the son of God? Then and he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said, What further need do we have of testimony? It's Luke twenty two seventy seventy one. So, um, and then they come and they accuse um, him before Pilate, um, and they say, um, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is a king, um, or a, is Christ a king? Luke twenty three two. And then um, in John 19, 7, they say, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be God or the Son of God. So here we see that they came up with theological reasons. And, um, you know, uh, all over the place, you know, they're, they're offended because he identifies himself as um, the Son of God and as the Christ. And, you know, and and so they're they're so threatened that they're, willing to almost do anything to be rid of him. And, um, but they don't do it alone. They do it with these lower level collaborators, um, that, um, that are everywhere mentioned in the gospels. And this is something that really struck me this last week, Holy week, when I was reading through the narratives of Jesus's, um, arrest and everything, just check out some of these examples, like Matthew 27, 48, a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Like they show up behind Judas in the garden. Well, how is it that not only do we have um, these religious leaders who right from the start were, were opposing Jesus, but, but you have all these other players. And, um, you know, in our day and age, we, we see the same thing at work, don't we? We see, you know, um, higher level leaders who, you know, who, endorse a particular candidate or a particular, um, you know, law that needs to be shift changed according to, you know, a, a viewpoint out there or whatever. Um, and then you have all this work that happens through, you know, through talk radio, through people's um, sermons, through articles, and you, uh, you know, you win people over and then those, those people become, um, you know, a political force. And, um, you know, and is that the way the kingdom of God comes? I mean, no, we don't see Jesus operating that way ever. You know, um, Jesus has other collaborators that are that are working in the midst of, of all of these situations that we're going to identify briefly in a few minutes. But but we we've got um, the power the powers, and then their lower level uh, people. You know, Peter he cuts off the ear of Malchus. Um, you know, he had a sword and. And he cuts off the ear of the high priest slave who's there, right? And um, he's there because he's a slave. But um, And then later when there's um, a, a slave girl uh, who was a relative of, um, of the one whose ear Peter cut off, that, um, that person, the slave of the high priest, uh, says, didn't I see you, that is Peter, in the garden with him? And Peter denies it again. But see, there we have even lower level people, slaves who are related to other slaves who are, who are, who are part of the accusing group that is, and that are antagonists against the, the Jesus movement, against Jesus's disciples. You know, we see in Matthew 27, 60, many false witnesses came forward. Um, John 18, 17, um, a slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? like uh, putting him on blast. Um, John 18, 22, one of the officers standing nearby, you know, when Jesus uh, 
says, hey, I've, 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 everything I've been doing, I've been doing publicly. He struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So clearly this is someone wanting a promotion. He's proving himself to be loyal to the powers. And, um, but there's no real theological reason that he has for that. It's all about just loyalty. It's all about, you know, being an underling who's, who's showing that you're, you know, that you're in, wanting to be in good graces with the boss. John 18, 23, Jesus um, challenges him and says, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? So Jesus holds these lower level people accountable. You know, he challenges the higher level people and the lower level people. He's, you know, and I think this is really wanting, uh, th these, these scriptures are challenging us to, you know, to not be collaborators, right? And to not t tolerate that kind of lower level collaboration. You know, we need to be about um, truth and we need to be, be standing um, in, in a, a, I guess our resistance needs to be, um, there needs to be an intolerance of just, uh, of just letting ourselves be used and co-opted by, you know, by the powers. Our silence is, um, it, you know, is, is not neutral. It's, it's highly charged. Um, the chief priests and the elders, they persuade the crowd to ask for Bar Barabbas um, to be released and to put Jesus to death. Well, how is it that the crowd are persuaded? You know, how is it that the masses get persuaded that, you know, that yes, we need to just keep sending billions of dollars to Ukraine or, or yes, we need to, um, you know, possibly go to war with China or with Iran or, or we need to build a bigger wall and just uh, deport people or, or yes, you know, we need to uh, you know, put people to death on, on death row and expedite those, uh, those deaths so that, so that we actually justice is served according to certain people. Like, how is it that, um, that we're so prone to being, um, you know, being manipulated and used, you know, by, um, the people in power of whatever party. I think um, there's just many examples in the Gospels of, of people following along and benefiting from Jesus, but not really committing themselves to him. I mean, we see it in John 6, where Jesus multiplies the loaves and feeds 5,000 people. And then then he takes off because uh, he knows they want to make him king. And but then he joins his disciples um, walking on the water and and then the crowds they they come and they look for him and and he says you you came to me uh only because you've eaten of the bread and you know and there's this critique of of the masses that runs through the gospels that should be a challenge to us like um you know i i've been i've been just really um upset lately in a lot of ways just looking at all the competition that happens between um, nonprofit organizations, you know, ministries too, and churches, like everybody is, uh, you know, nervous because funding is um, hard to come by these days. You know, since COVID, really, it's been tougher for a lot of nonprofit organizations, Tierno uh, Wave included, to raise money. And so everyone's marketing and some people just have it down. I mean, they send out updates all the time. They're super well-written and, you know, there's testimonies that, that are put out there and, you know, and um, I don't know that organizations are applauding 
the success of other organizations. But there's big money out there. And if you want that money and um, you're a faith-based organization, then a lot of that money is not available to you unless you you have uh, make it clear that you're not about proselytizing. You're not about uh, focusing on Jesus. You're 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 just helping people with material needs, and you know. And there's a lot of money that will that you do not have access to if you um, you know if you're if you have a holism about your ministry that includes proclamation, raising up disciples, you know, uh, baptizing people, uh, you know, praying for people, things like that. It's um, what gets privileged are, um, you know, like help ways to that organizations that help people concretely in ways that are visible, like, like that help people, um, you know, with their reentry process coming out of prison or help the homeless, you know, get into housing and get jobs. And of course we need to be doing that. No doubt about it. However, it's sad to me that a lot of um, organizations that started out faith-based suddenly have board members that aren't Christians and and are, are are watering down their mission statements to make themselves more um, you know viable to you know to grantors that that are not faith-based grantors and um, you know and I think you know we have people going along with that and and there's competition there's a lot of competition there's a lot of money that is being um, channeled towards um, you know towards organizations that promote a particular agenda and there's a lot of money going into um you know propaganda you know to the into to media uh, that seeks to influence public opinion and you know a lot um a lot of money that's trying to shift you know people's views on lots of things and um you know and jesus really i think is uh, is calling us to this narrow path of radical trust in this one who is being discarded uh, by everybody, including the very masses who were saying, Hosanna um, in the, is, is the, you know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord who are lauding Jesus uh, when he comes in, um, you know, on Palm Sunday. And, um, you know, and then suddenly they are just uh, so fickle and, and manipul- manipulatable and, um, and they are crying out, crucify him the next minute. And um, I think we haven't really changed much um, since then. So, you know, how do we hold um, a, a posture of resistance, you know, to the pressures that are on us to um, to just bow to the God, um, you know, the sort of the highest power of our world, which is mammon, you know, money and the love of money, and um, which is described as being the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Um, and really, um, following Jesus is about like this radical trust. Um, you know, not don't don't seek after um, the things that the Gentiles seek after. That the you know that the the pagans, so to speak, of the of the day, you know, who are worried about what we eat, drink, and put on. You know, about just security, which of course seems absolutely understandable and normal that people would. Uh, seek after security who are poor. But Jesus says, no, be, don't be anxious, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, um, you know, Matthew 6, is such a radical call that I think we need to go back to over and over again. Um, you know, Pilate is wanting to distance himself from what he's, what he is seeing is, 
is really a messed up situation. The accusations against Jesus don't, he doesn't buy them. And, um, you know, he, um, in Matthew 27, he says, um, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And then all the people said, says um, in Matthew 27, 25, and all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. So look at that. Like, talk about conformity. And yet, um, his blood being upon them and upon their children, um, ironically, or, or just um, amazingly, is actually a declaration of, of salvation, you know, through his blood which was poured out for the sins of the world, including those, those people and their children. Um, you know, in, in John 19, we have soldiers that are described as twisting together a crown of thorns and putting on his head and putting a purple robe on, robe on Jesus and coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and giving him slaps in the face and people spitting on him. And um, one of the soldiers in John 19:34 pierced his side with a spear and, um, you know, and so all of these people that are just going along with the system, um, you know, um, we see the same thing today, right? When you have, um, you know, when the Nazis came to power, you had just masses of ordinary uh, Germans that went along with it. You know, um, when the Ku Klux Klan was uh, in its heyday in Indiana in the 1920s, I was just reading this book about that. Um, I mean, there were, there were some so many people that were part of the KKK and it was just this mass movement um, until the the top guy sort of got exposed as being a super corrupt person and then it lost a lot of its, uh, you know, a lot of people turned away from it. But, you know, but there's just a lot of evil that happens in the world through just the phenomena of just people conforming, you know, to, um, you know, to, I guess, the viewpoints of very articulate and charismatic leaders and we live in a day when there's 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 so uh so many um you know completely deceptive narratives happening and we need to as disciples of jesus be much more closely uh tethered to jesus and abiding in his teachings and and deeply connected to him you know um we see a whole string of collaborators of Jesus and the kingdom throughout the gospels as well. And I think I'd, I'd like to do another podcast maybe on that topic, but at the end, um, you know, when Jesus is in his final days, uh, you know, of his death and, and his burial and everything, you have these individuals that are described like Nicodemus who had come to Jesus by night is described as providing like 75 pounds or, um, yeah, of, uh, you know, of, of, of spices for burying Jesus and, you know, wrapping his, you know, like the spices that were used in burial. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea is, is giving him um, a tomb that where no one is laid. Um, we have John who is, uh, you know, who is given the responsibility of taking care of Mary. And, um, and we have women who are, who are, who are there, who are, who are watching and who are not part of the, collaborating force you know they're they're grieving and they're and they're watching from a distance and and then they're they come to the tomb and they're some of the first ones to um to receive the revelation um to have the resurrected jesus show up and and he does you know he he comes 
and he meets them on, um, you know, the resurrected Jesus and, um, you know, and he comes to the humblest ones and empowers them to, um, to be the ground zero really of the movement to, um, which is, uh, which went from, you know, um, just people bearing witness, you know, uh, we've seen the Lord and he says, you know, um, meet, meet us, meet us up in Galilee. Um, you know, let's meet up, up in Galilee and, and, and the movement happens through, um, through believers who, you know, who in the immediate aftermath of this brutal and unjust crucifixion are, um, carriers of, of, of the message of the subversive message that the worst that the powers could do to Jesus, uh, couldn't stop him because he's alive. And, um, so if we go back and we just revisit the question of, you know, like what God is embodied, um, is, is there any sign of a God who is requiring, um, you know, death and, um, and who, you know, is requiring that someone be punished in, you know, the gospel accounts of Jesus's death. The only group that really embodies a punishing God are the religious leaders um, who are um, accusing Jesus himself, you know, God in the flesh of blasphemy. And um, they're embodying um, their understanding that God um, must punish um, blasphemy and um, the breaking of the law, you know, through the death penalty. And they're the ones that um, embody this kind of um, penal substitution in a way. They're the ones that even say that it's, it's better that one man dies um, for this, you know, for the nation than, than that all perish. And, um, and so really, um, they're the ones that require, um, that Jesus die. And Jesus in reality is, um, is described as giving himself to them, to us. You know, when, um, he breaks bread with his disciples, when he celebrates the Passover with him on the, the eve of his arrest, you know, what does he say? He says, um, he breaks the bread, he gives thanks and breaks the bread and said, take and eat, um, you all. He doesn't give his body to the father as a sacrifice, but he gives it to, um, to us. He says, you all, you guys take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he doesn't, um, offer up the blood, his life to the father, but he says, uh, this is my blood drink ye all of it in remembrance of me. Um, you know, he, he tells his disciples and, um, in John six that they must, you know, eat his body, eat his flesh and drink his blood or they have no part in him. So it's us. Um, it's, it's we humans that need, um, Jesus's body and blood, uh, to be sacrificed, um, to us in a way by God. It's God who gives himself to us, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, it's God who gives himself to us. And, um, you know, but the whole, the whole movement of God's death in Jesus or Jesus's death as the son of God happens, um, because of this perverse theology that is embodied by the religious leaders of Jesus's time, um, that would, that led them to 
to actually put to death the author of life. Um, and, um, and that's how the author of life, in the end, overcame the worst that humans could do. So let's remember that and meditate on that and seek to live lives in alignment, you know, with Jesus's way of resistance.